Please welcome the Mincing Rascals. Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to Second City, and welcome to the Mincing Rascals podcast. I'm John Williams. You can hear me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. I'm John Hanson, WGN Radio, WCIU-TV, Block Club Chicago, and the Chicago Blackhawks. I'm Brandon Pope, host of On the Block with Block Club Chicago on WCIU and the Making Podcast on WBEZ. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Eric Zorn, the publisher of the Picky and Sentinel, an award-worthy weekly Substack newsletter. <laughs> The temporary solution for the thousands of migrants streaming daily into Chicago is temporary housing. You could call them tents to the tune of $29 million. The numbers are changing, but currently we have something like 14,000 recent arrivals, 8,300 of whom are in city shelters. 59% are from Venezuela. You will see many of them when you go by one of the police stations they now call home. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan tweeted this week, it's not just New York. Illegal aliens are arriving in cities like Chicago daily. How long before it happens where you live? <laughs> it reminded me of that Bill Cosby chicken heart monologue. Bump, bump, they're in your home state. You know, here they come. Oh my God, what's going to happen? Paul Vallis and a couple of aldermen are asking that the issue of Chicago's sanctuary status be put to voters should the citizens of the city, John Hansen, get to vote on that? Boy, migrants and Bill Cosby in the first minute, John. Wow. Here we go. We're jumping right We're in. zooming. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, I, the sanctuary city thing comes with a few rules and regulations, but I think for the most part it's a fairly perfunctory thing except for its relationship with ICE and the federal government. It does make sense, I think, the citizens should vote for that, like many things uh, here. But I think that it's a local, we have a lot of symptom here of a, of a big federal problem that is much bigger than any local municipality. We've had about 15,000, I think, Venezuelan migrants or so in the area uh, in the last year and a half or so. Think of El Paso, which has been dealing with and other border states with so much. This is a federal problem that lands squarely on the Biden administration for their inaction, but also the administrations beforehand, the Trump administration, the U.S. Senate, uh, which failed to act in the House in 2013. So, Yes, I think we should vote on whether it's a sanctuary city or not. I think it's a good idea. How would you vote? How would I vote? Yeah. Oh. It wouldn't yes. be by, I mean, it's kind of a yes. bogus vote anyway, right? It's, it's not, I don't know that it means anything. I don't know when the city declares itself a sanctuary city. It means much. I mean, you're right. We don't cooperate with the federal government, but I don't know that that therefore means we are automatically a landing place for Texas. No, but I do think there is something a little strange about ignoring federal laws you don't like, and I do think that's a dangerous precedent. It's like having certain states ignore certain Supreme Court decisions and with the way the federal government reacts. So, like, my heart says yes, but my idea of like following what the rules are and the way the courts have ruled says no. We've been talking on the podcast right about work, right? And I think that's the only sustainable solution to any of this, which has become a humanitarian crisis in Chicago, is the ability for migrants to work because they're willing and able to work. And we finally got movement on that from the Biden administration where I believe immigrants from Venezuela who arrived before August now can seek an ex expedited work permit, which is great. 
Well, but that's still, that there's still, I believe, 60% who will not be able to well, access that. I don't understand. Well, what was the point of that? Of that? It was July 31st deadline, right? What was the point right. of that? It's so like that and the, people... point, the point is, is to this point, which is that the idea is that it's moral hazard, right? Because you don't want people coming with the expectation that they can get a work permit. But so they, they drew an arbitrary line. But the same logic would apply, obviously, to the sanctuary city stuff, right? right. It does, does that create a moral hazard for people uh, you know, well, deciding I don't, to come to I don't Chicago think they're coming here. Else? I don't think they're coming here just for a job. I mean, I, I, I think they, I mean, if you set, you set the, the date at July 31st, but they didn't even make this announcement until a couple of weeks ago, so that all the people who came here during, during, September, during August and September, early part of September, they're all wondering why not them, and what are they? What are they supposed to do? Also, at the same time. Well, I think the key thing here is like you also got to worry about the state law itself as well, which wants to make sure that local municipalities can't use local police agencies to detain people, um, immigration busters, in a sense. Right? We don't want to get to a state like that, but it's just fascinating how like this has become an issue that towns even outside of Texas and, and places like that have to deal about. Like Chicago is now a border town all of a sudden. We just saw what this is the second most arrivals today happening via bus. Yeah. I mean this is a it's just the bleeding hasn't stopped, right? But shouldn't but, we be absorbing this just like the border cities and states are? Like why should that just geographically right, be yeah. Arizona and Texas's problem. And that's part of the genius gambit there that was made by Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron It was Ron not DeSantis a genius there. gambit. I mean, politically, like if you're playing political maybe. football, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're flipping the issue and saying, hey, you want to have all this talk and oh, rhetoric? Hey, sure enough. We, 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 we played into that. Austin, what were you going to say? Well, it speaks to the fragility of our city, right? Chicago is the fastest growing city in the history of the world in the early part of the 20th century, right? And we can't handle, what, 15,000 migrants from another country who mostly want to come here and contribute to our city? Like, it, it, and we can't find the money in order to do it. The reason that Texas border towns have been able to deal with this in any kind of a way is because Texas is a growing state with massive budget surpluses that is able to react quickly to this kind of thing. Chicago has the highest percentage of fixed costs in its budget of any city in the country, like 40% of our budget is going to debt. So bad decisions that were made decades ago. And it restricts us in our ability to serve people and to do things for the future betterment of the city because we're paying for, for past mistakes. We also have had something around 30,000 Ukraine uh, migrants coming over and we've been able to absorb them. And I feel like it's a good point that we can absorb these people, and ultimately, I feel like this influx of, of migrants or asylum seekers, whatever language you want to use to talk about them, uh, they are going to contribute to our city, to our tax base, to everything that we have here, and that, and that it's going to be a net positive the way immigration has always ended up being a net positive. Yeah. It's just this is going to be a rough patch because we're spending, uh, what is it, $29 million to build a tent city or a bunch of tents somewhere yeah. we're not sure where I mean that's that's going to be a, a, a big impact right away but I think long term it's it's basically good it, it's what makes me really curious about how exactly a vote would go if this came to a vote because I you look at the black community, communities of color overall, you're seeing lots of rising tensions from them as well because they feel like, okay, we have, you say the majority of people that are homeless in Chicago being minorities um, and we're building tents all of a sudden, like we could have done that before, right? Like why did we yeah, not? Yeah, was the $29 million for the last Yeah, I mean, years, right? we, we've been having a homeless crisis, something Mayor Brandon Johnson's kind of run on, fixing, right? 
And then here we are, 15,000 come in. Oh, we've got a solution right here that seemed like we could have fit that for our own people as well. So it's, it's raising tensions for sure. The way I see it ultimately is humanity first for sure. We got to do something about what's going on here. These, it, it breaks my heart when I'm walking down State Street. Uh, I, my nearest police station is the near, near north side neighborhood over there. You see them just camped out. Yeah. With yeah. nothing. Yeah. And they're begging for food, for money, for all kinds of things. It breaks your heart, but it should also break our heart as well, what's going on, on on our streets. Little kids, our own black kids, homeless without a meal because of budget cuts. You have it. So I think it, it's, a, it's a challenging issue, and I feel like a vote. Chicago might surprise people. I know we're a big blue city, but uh, it might actually flip on the other side. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I would guess that the vote right now would be, no, let's cancel our sanctuary yeah. status. Not that Greg Abbott's going to go, oh, well, I guess we can't send them up to Illinois anymore. They're going to keep coming. We had eight buses yesterday, seven yesterday. Eight today, seven yesterday. And that's the most we've ever had. They just Top two days. They just keep on coming. They're coming, but John, they're coming through the border that quickly or, or much faster as well. So that these, these people have to go somewhere. I mean, and I, and I agree that it's very cynical to put them in, in you know, to Chicago and New York and not spread them around the country. But it's, it's not like they're accelerating the passage of people here because, you know, they're just scraping people off the streets of El Paso. No, but they are sending to Chicago for political purposes. Absolutely. And, and, Absolutely. and if I were in Arizona or Texas, I think I would be more uh, prepared for it. I mean, Illinois... Damn it, Lori, you said we're a sanctuary city, and it sounded so good, didn't it? We didn't have any tents. I would imagine that with federal dollars available to them, too, I mean, what are we going to end up spending here? $300 million by the end of this year for our 15,000 migrants that they must have money and resources. They're better prepared. It's closer for them. I'm sorry if you live in Texas. You've got nice weather. This is something that geographically should stay there at least until we have a, a means to care for them. Yeah. They're not calling us saying, hey, here comes some more. Are you good with it? Yeah, and I didn't expect to spend this podcast defending Greg Abbott, but <laughs> they don't have... I knew we had this order right. <laughs> <laughs> Texas and Arizona doesn't have the autonomy to reject people from crossing the border, right? For immigration is, by definition, has it been ruled through the Supreme Court through ages to be a federal law issue that needs federal responses. And the federal government has done nearly nothing to react to this except tell them that they can't do the most frustrating thing of all is that we can't get these people employed quickly and contributing in a way that i think they would like to contribute we do need the population we we would be better off to have an influx of fifteen thousand people right and yeah you need an influx of population because there will also be a strain on for instance chicago public schools right there's a lot of new kids in chicago public schools that's great news in theory for chicago public schools which has been hemorrhaging students for a very long time in the 60s cps had over half a million kids and now it's less than 300,000 kids. It's really sad. But yeah, maybe this could be a new generation of Chicagoans who contribute and thrive and work in our city, but uh, they should be allowed to contribute as well. It's also just, it speaks to a larger issue. These are all uh, asylum seekers that have at least gone through one appearance to try and make their case for why they should be seeking asylum. A judge is at least it's it's passed the smell test for for lack of a better term. But a lot of the people that are going to come here that are going to get jobs that are going to get work are going to go to their asylum hearing and be sent home, and that does nothing to the overall problem of letting them build futures here. I'll bet not very many of them can get sent home. You don't you think, think so? You think? Yes. Venezuela's. Uh, you know how pro- hard it is to prove asylum. You can't leave and claim asylum because there aren't a 
lot of jobs or it's a bad economy back home, you have to fear for your life and prove it to a judge. How many people have been sent back so far? I don't know. Well, it, it, it takes six years. That's not to go. John's job take, to know something <laughs> yeah, like that. No, but like it's a journalist. Hold on, but it takes it takes right now. The wait time is three years, so we'd have to go back to the numbers from 2018, 2019. Three years if you're lucky. Some migrants might have to wait six years before this is decided. They will establish homes. They may have met people, married people, had kids here that are citizens of this country for now. If Vivek Ramaswamy doesn't have his way, but that are going to be sent home. A lot of them will be. I mean, asylum is not an easy process. It's it's not a backdoor in. I will bet you that they don't send very many of them home at all. Okay. Well, you've well, got a see few you in years. six years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what money are we putting down? Everybody come back like, in 2029. 20, <laughs> we'll see. One just last statistic about this. I mean, if you do the math, 14,000 people, that's the number I was using for the migrant population, divided into the about 300 million that we've spent or evidently have committed, comes to $21,428 per migrant, which is just like such a colossal failure of government to anticipate and manage. If you said we got $21,000 per person, we have no idea how to handle it or manage it. I'll bet they would just say, I'll take a check and I'll ha- I- I'm good on my own, right? <laughs> Let's just give them the money and say, okay, you all find your place. Well, to John, you, f- you calculated or you looked up the average rent. Yeah. In Chicago, and right? And that, how much? How many years of rent is that? Uh, not enough. Uh, I need a check too, if that's the case. Ooh, I'll tell say you that what, again. I need a check as well. It's tough out here. <laughs> Average three-bedroom rent in Chicago is twenty-seven hundred dollars a month. Okay, next you can top. hang around actually Second City, and you can get like four or five roommates who will split you <laughs> five hundred a month, easy. Guys, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan brought an unofficial congressional committee, a field trip, he called it, to Chicago today to talk about crime. If the congressional committee roadshow that was here today wanted to go where the crime is, they could have gone to Red State, Missouri. St. Louis has the most murders per capita in America. Or Jordan's own home state, Dayton, is number five on the FBI's crime per capita list. He could have made a trip to Cleveland, too, his own home state. They're number 10 on that list, but they came here. Jordan tweeted on X, which I think is how you can say that. Tweeted on X. X. That's a a good way, yeah. We can agree on that, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. It's so much shorter than posted on the platform formerly known as or whatever. (laughs) He tweeted, 30 shot, 3 killed, 1 weekend, Democrat runs Chicago. And I'm thinking, dude, we're proud of those numbers. That's a, that's a good weekend in Chicago. Are you kidding me? Downstate Congressperson Mary Miller made the perilous trip to Chicago. I think Matt Gates was in town. He asked if the city was asked if, no, he asked if the city of Chicago can be saved or if we just need to move on and learn from the lesson. Uh, Chicago, by the way, is number 28 on that list. And per capita, Peoria is number 15. Uh, the FBI's, I'll give you one more, list of total crimes for 2022 ranks Chicago at number 44. So it's bad in Chicago. I mean, literally, every time I throw all this out on the air, people go, got it, I'm not coming downtown. And you do have these now patterns of 8, 10, 12 people or places getting robbed on a given weeknight or weekend night. I don't know how to reconcile those things, but these numbers are true, and that crap is also happening. Same statue you gave us that robberies are up 24%, vehicle thefts are up 86%. Yep, the that's city, a lot one. of those vehicle thefts are these terrifying yeah. uh, carjackings. And you know, per capita statistics are, are comforting in a way, but they're also just the sheer volume 
of crimes, the kind of crimes you see, like the, the beating that we saw on TV news last night with a guy walking down the alley and just, you know, the guys wanted his backpack and they just beat the crap out of him. Uh, and we caught it on video. And then the, uh, the crime read about with the uh, employees of the cell phone store who were yeah. uh, uh, hogtied. Or, and and so, so the, these kind of anecdotes, it's like the, the per capita numbers aren't very comforting to people when they read about those, those things. And, and so just the sheer number of crimes and and I mean I I totally distance myself from the uh, cynical ploy of coming to Chicago. I think there's some racism involved in that as well as as uh, political opportunism. But I do understand the just the visceral response people have to the number of crimes rather than the per capita. But if for a depopulation of three million people, if three people get shot and killed or 30 people get shot, add up Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, Idaho, Nebraska, Oklahoma. It's about the same population as Chicago, something like that. And then say, did three people get shot and killed in those states? They did. I know that's not persuasive, but isn't that also true? Yeah, no, it's definitely true. I have a visceral reaction to wiping or brushing aside Chicago's violence problem by comparing us to places that are not our peers. St. Louis, which I love, is not a peer of Chicago. Dayton, Ohio, is not a peer of Chicago. Hey, watch it. It's watch not, it now. It's not. Okay. It's that's, not. It's a great, the dirty D, as we call it. It's beautiful, right? <laughs> But uh, meaning that uh, we need to compare ourselves to our real peers. And the fact is, is that we have more homicides per year than New York and L.A. combined. We have double the homicide rate of those places. Our violence problem is really, really serious. So when people, the, the instant reaction of like, well, the St. Louis homicide rate is much worse. It's like, well, yeah, but we're not, we shouldn't be competing with St. Louis. The one thing about that, that sort of tour that made no sense to me politically is that in all of their press releases, they're talking about Kim Fox. Like, they're coming on, like, a dump on Kim Fox. Tour. Within she, the first 60 seconds. Yeah. And she's it. a lame she's dog. She's leaving. Yeah. What, what was the point of that? Like, really, what was the point of that? Is she, do they think she's going to seek higher officers? Like, Answer that question. A, what, what do you think the purpose of that was? I have no idea. I think just incompetence. I don't, I think they think, I don't think they knew oh, Kim Fox was you don't running. think that's incompetence? I don't think they know Kim Fox was running. There is no political benefit to attacking Kim Fox. She's why a would, buzzword. She, she is a buzzword. She, she yeah, gets the it, base happy, and, it, and it's to distract from what they need to be worrying about right now, which is funding the U.S. government. <laughs> like, they realize that's a losing issue for them right now. They're on the losing side of that right now because they're holding the government ransom. The biggest employer of people in the country is about to not have checks go out to people, what, on Sunday? If this thing doesn't get solved. And so they're trying to find any way to just get their base riled up get them back on their side and say, hey, but remember, this is what we're fighting, right? This is, this is the real focus here. But it's a total sideshow. I'm amazed they actually had the hearing in Chicago and not Naperville, which is where they like to <laughs> Ooh. Good one. We're here in Chicago yeah. at yeah. this diner in yeah. Naperville. And here's a critic wearing a tie at a breakfast place. Yes. That was a Fox News episode. But Austin, if I'm walking down the street in Dayton, Aren't I more likely to get shot and killed than if I'm walking down the street? It depends where you are. It's, it's an but that's and true about thing. Chicago, it's, too. No, but it's, it's totally ap- apples and oranges. And I think the point is that the How infrastructure... That? It's apples and oranges because public safety in Chicago is, is an entirely different dynamic than in Dayton. The economy is different. Everything about the city is on a completely different scale. And we have a police department that is orders of magnitude larger than Dayton. So we have a... An, an infrastructure of public safety that's completely different. And, and I think that we could probably learn lessons from the management of other uh, police departments and other cities in terms of how they manage public safety. But saying that uh, 
you know, these, these really like, I don't want to call them second tier, third tier cities, but <laughs> the cities that are outside, say, right. the top 15 cities in the country, that's, it's not a fair Here's what I don't get about Chicago. So well, we talk on the air and we talk with listeners. We talk about how uh, upset we are with our numbers. But the moment the Congress or anyone else talks down about Chicago, we get our guard so up. Why are we so easily offended by a problem that we identify every single day, but the moment someone from out of town insults what we have, we get our guard up so much? We should be honest with ourselves. It's a terrible problem. This is like that phenomenon of people not hearing the fire alarm chirping in their background. Have you seen this? No. On Zoom? People, have you been on Zoom? Like, people <laughs> have their fire alarm chirping, and it goes off every 30 seconds, and you immediately, you become numb to it, and it goes on for years. Ah, That's wow. a new thing. Wow. That's like us. And then when someone points it out, you're like, what are you talking about? This is fine. It's, it's an evergreen problem, a terrible problem, but it's a problem True. we've talked about here in Chicago for decades, right? And so I think that's the reason why you saw the election play out the way it has. You've seen similar solutions and fear tactics used in campaigning for numerous campaigns, talking about the same thing, stopping crime, tough on crime. And so voters this time, who are becoming a little more younger, the electorate, they're voting in bigger numbers, a little more left are saying, maybe it's time to try something different. Brandon Jones is still early in his mayoralship to really see what he can enact to put an immediate stop to things here. But, you know, something's got to give at some point. Well, I I think that Brandon Johnson, in many ways, was running a playbook that Kim Fox ran and won twice on. And say what you will, pro or against Kim Fox, she told you what she wanted to do, and she did it. And uh, agree or disagree, I would prefer a politician do that or a state's attorney do that than to say one thing and do nothing. Do what? Of the sort. Do what? To do nothing of the sort. No, but I mean, so what would to we... run on some on this that we're going to stop recidivism? We are going to stop keeping people in prison and then go and then not decriminalize marijuana convictions, right? I'd rather see someone do something I disagree with, but they actually campaigned on it. They did it. They stuck with their word than someone that didn't. So for all the the faults that a lot of people find in Kim Fox, she did exactly what she said she was going to do. But isn't the problem for Kim Fox and Brandon Johnson that their solution is the long view? 100%. And, and people we don't have patience for that. I think that's the problem. We, we see this problem as either we have to tackle this from a long perspective. People need more opportunities in communities. They absolutely do. People need better education. They need more jobs. They need more this. That is absolutely true. But it doesn't mean you can't do simple measures or certain measures to keep things a little safer in the, long, in the short term as well. The problem that you get on is when you start throwing people in prison for decades for three strikes stuff like that right right you have permanent problems but when you see video of a bunch of kids jumping up and down on cars and stopping an intersection right people want that to stop and they want those kids rounded up and they want to put in jail or something like that and then kim fox or brandon johnson will say well they don't say we need more gyms open at midnight but that's kind of the way it sounds and I think this, I don't know how this audience feels about it, but our radio audience, John, has no patience for that. That, that does not, that sounds like a cop-out to them. That doesn't sound like, that's a zero burger to them. Just the long term? Yeah, well, I mean, all right, so we need, because then I'll take the calls, you get these calls, and they'll say, well, my parents knew where I was at 1030 on a Saturday night. That, that, that might as well be a call from Mars, as far as I'm concerned, you know? But I mean, the, the test of these 
philosophies that Kim Fox brings to the table is, all, is always going to be, it's just like getting rid of cash bail. The test is not whether it kind of sounds right to you, it's whether in the long run it does the job, whether it lowers the crime rate, whether it makes people feel safer in the long run. And, and the idea behind not locking people up for every little thing and for returning people to the community and to the jobs before they're found guilty of a crime is that it's, it ultimately strengthens communities and families and it lets people stay employed. It, 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 it is deleterious to society to have people locked up for a long time, especially for, for minor offenses. That's the idea that Kim Fox brought to the table. That's what progressive prosecutors are supposed to be doing. And, and the test of that theory is not whether you have some, you know, some uh, employees uh, tied up at a, at a cell phone store. It's right. the, the test is whether long term you see that, that those kind of incidents going down. And 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 that's what the th- it's going to be with the with the no cash bail thing too. It's like we're going to have definitely we're going to have instances of people who are let out by a judge. You say we don't have to incarcerate you. Come back to to, to uh, your trial, and those people are going to go and, and do something terrible. And but that's already happening. They're already I mean, before the end of cash bail. You had people who who paid their cash bail and got out and killed somebody or shot somebody. Uh, but. You can't look at the end of it. You can't, it's not an anecdotal situation. It is a statistical analysis you have to do over the long term, whether someone like Kim Fox or these, or these uh, the Safety Act reforms are making people safer. And that's the whole point. That's the, whole, that's the test. The test isn't aren't these anecdotes. It's, it's, it's statistics. What, what I would like to hear from Brandon Johnson's rhetoric about this that has not been evident so far is that these incidents will happen, and the line is, we need to address root causes, poverty is causing crime. What is left unsaid is that crime also causes poverty. And that is a short-term problem that does need some set of a plan or a solution to solve. When there is crime that people feel is being unaddressed, businesses leave, grocery stores shut down, people don't want to move here, people don't want to relocate here. There are serious consequences of that on the entire social agenda of Brandon Johnson. If you agree with that, that requires a growing tax base, that requires people to want to be here and want to invest here, and crime threatens all of that. Do you think he's making a mistake now? How would you guide him then on that? That's an interesting point, right? Crime causes poverty, poverty causes crime. So what... What was, what's your prescription here? I think I've said this before, but the management of the average Portillos in the Chicagoland area is better than the management of the Chicago Police Department. <laughs> and that, if you want to know the details of that, read the consent decree that we are... If I get an applause line on a Portillos joke, I'm going to go <laughs> crazy. Um, so, one, you need to focus intensely on the management of the police department and that has really not really been a part of Johnson's rhetoric here. Um, he's picked a new police chief, which we don't know if that's going to be good or bad yet. We'll see how that plays out. Um, and then second, Chicago does have, because of that inefficient bureaucracy in the police department, we do have spend more per capita on police than other places, and that should be addressed. But in the short term, there are active calls for help that are being unanswered because we are understaffed and undermanned, and that's just a reality. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to hire 10,000 more police officers, but we need to adequately staff response to calls for help, which is not happening. Well, don't you think a lot of it is I feel like we are so uncomfortable in the gray areas of life now, uh, and we are so on teams 
politically that whoever we love is a pol- we have to go with that idea that's what we're going with we're going at the whole way whether it's the long view or the short view and obviously the answer like most things is in the middle somewhere and we need some sort of embracing that these are complex issues that require both short-term and long-term solutions but the problem is there's elections every few years and people got to run on something I, I wonder who the next state's attorney is and what's the What's the playbook that this person's going to read from, Eric? Well, if you remember, uh, voters rejected, was it Pat O'Brien? Was that the uh, Republican who ran against Kim Fox? I think that's right, the right name. Um, and he ran on a very strong law and order platform. Paul Vallis ran on a very strong law and order platform, and he got beaten pretty badly by Brandon Johnson, that the voters have been saying that they want this approach to be followed, that they, even after the whole Jussie Smollett fiasco, and I, I think Kim Fox handled that about as badly as she possibly could have, um, voters still resoundingly reelected her. They like, they, they endorse that philosophy that she is, that she stands for over the law and order thing. And, and Brandon Johnson also had uh, a message of reform, a message of, of a different kind of policing, the treatment, not trauma. Yeah. This was, this is what the voters want to try. And you, you, I guess you just have to say we have to we have to stick with that. Now Kim Fox isn't running again, but my guess is that the person who runs in her stead as a Democrat is probably going to be echoing that philosophy. Yeah, well I think there's two things. I saw Paul Vallis the other night in Peoria, of all places, at an event for George Manius, the shoe shine guy, and Paul went down there to pay tribute to a guy. It was kind of nice to bump into him there. And I said to him what I have said on the radio before. If the suburbs could have voted, you would have been mayor. But, <laughs> but, and it's kind of weird because the suburbs are much impacted by who the mayor of Chicago is. And if Brandon Johnson has these progressive or idealistic ideas, the question becomes then, how are you going to fund that? How are you going to finance these things? And boy, that's where it's really hit the fan on the radio now. I mean, so the transfer tax on a title or some of these other things, uh, I, I'm not sensing, a, as much as we may like, I mean, Chicago's voted, they like this idealistic progressive platform of Brandon Johnson, but I haven't taken calls. I know David Hochberg hasn't taken calls, <laughs> our mortgage guy, on how much they love some of the financing plans for some of these things. If you want to attract more investment or more money or more taxes into the city to pay for some of this stuff, how does that happen? How, Austin's just got kind of a smirk on his face now. <laughs> He's like, I told you so. I, I think you need creative solutions. Absolutely. You've got to think outside the box. Uh, but you also have to bring people to the table who may not be on your side of the aisle. Like what, what John said, the answer here is probably somewhere in the gray, not the, the right or the left, right? So I think it's important that you consult with other people and their viewpoints, people who are experts on crime, people who are, have seen, have experience, or veterans on this. Because it's one thing just to spew rhetoric, right? But you have to actually have the people that have been in the room, who have been on the calls, who understand what's happening out there. And it seems like Mayor Brandon Johnson believes that he's doing that right now and how he's lining up his uh, CPD leadership and trying to get experience there, but also those that are open to uh, trying a more treatment, not trauma approach. Because the, the data shows that when cities embrace um, you know, treating people with care, uh, addressing mental health, uh, not having police officers address mental health, but actually people that are trained to handle those calls, um, the results are much better long-term for those people in particular and communities overall. It, but it's got, it's got to be a two-thronged approach. And it's got to get creative with it. Uh, one of those creative ideas, uh, 
community grocery store, right? Uh, Let's give it up, the community grocery <laughs> store. All right. But look. But the city running the grocery store. People were blasted. They were like, what, what other ideas you, got, you guys got? I'm like, okay. I, 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 in theory, it sounds all right. You know, hey, we get some revenue. We talked about this last week, and you and I were champions of it. And the more we talked about yeah. it. The dumber the idea started. We talked ourselves out of it. Like, oh, crap, this is a bad idea. But I'm with you, or I I think I am. A basic need for human beings is food. Good food is better than bad food. The city is, for whatever reason, not providing low-cost, accessible, good food for people. Should the city step in? If there was a fire, we'd put it out. This is a hunger fire, and I don't know why everybody's like, oh, Chicago can't, you know, can't do that. The city does provide services. I, I like our chances. If we screw up on a grocery store, we, we've, we've made bigger mistakes before. Eric said we can't meters. even run parking <laughs> meters, right? Yeah. I just think I see the logistical hurdles of running a, a city running a grocery store being <laughs> enormous. And I like I, the idea of trying something, right? Well, what around the committee? A good governing philosophy is not... Yeah, what? I mean, let's just try it out. It hasn't worked. Wait, 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 wait. It hasn't worked worked anywhere else. It hasn't worked anywhere else. Most of any cool stuff has started from that. Let's just try it. That's how we got to the moon, Austin. (laughs) But I mean, seriously. The grocery store thing is, back to the root causes rhetoric, has anyone thought about the root causes of why there's not a grocery store in many parts of the city? It's because it's really hard to operate a business in the city of Chicago. That's why Walmarts are closing down. That's why Targets are closing down. That's why Whole Foods closed down. Yeah, but then why do a bunch of them exist on the north side and not many exist on the south side? There's plenty of cities where those places exist all over. And if you can't run a business profitably and you have to pull out, that is not, I think, instinctively, our political culture wants to chalk that up to racism because... Absolutely, because we're such a segregated city, that disproportionately is going to affect black communities. If you have a black grocery, if you have a grocery store in a black community, right in Chicago, but the reality is that they can't pencil out the numbers of operating here. Whether that and they've, those businesses have said these things and been very honest about them. It is the regulatory burden, it is the tax burden, and it is sometimes crime. Not always, but it is sometimes crime. And instead of addressing those things, we are saying, okay, what about this? What if? The city, which has produced, you know, such stellar results in public safety and in schools and in roads and in parking meters. Let's get into the grocery but business. Austin, it's food. If you take a loss on food and people got to eat something, not I'm not against care? I'm not against pe- assisting people with food. I think there's there should be strong social safety net for people to get food. Uh, that should not be provided through a, a Chicago. Chicago's very own Jewel Osco asterisk. This is owned by the government. But you're going to give it to them? I mean, it just seems to me like I, I said, operate it at a loss. I mean, it, that's better than maybe... Just give, this is like with, with uh, give people cash to buy food. We, we do not need to be in the grocery business. as a, Like, well, we're going to hire employees with or, tax dollars to run a grocery yeah, they'll, store? Yeah, they'll all start to collecting pensions, too. <laughs> but the, what if they go on strike? <laughs> and... Well, and, and every, everything they price is going to be something for debate, right? You know, like, oh, my God, my city grocery store is two thirty-five a gallon of milk, but at, at uh, Trader Joe's it's two thirty. And, and wow, how will you explain that, Mayor Johnson? No, I, I think what, you're t- what you need to look at is subsidizing the stores themselves, not, maybe not necessarily giving cash to the, uh, to the uh, residents, but giving subsidies to the grocery stores. Now, we did subsidize Whole Foods on the south side, and as soon as their subsidy ran out, they left, right? Yeah. Um, 
so, I mean, it has to be maybe more of a sustainable kind of subsidy. If these stores find that they can't operate profitably for one reason or another, and I don't, and I don't know if it's permits, I, I haven't studied that, but, but if it's that there is a theft problem, if there's a traffic problem uh, in terms of getting, getting enough customers into the store, let's subsidize those private businesses because that way we can maybe wean them off those subsidies at some point. Um, but if, if we go into the grocery store, I mean, I just, I just think that the potential headaches are enormous with that, and I would think it's a really bad I, idea. Look, if we, if we wanted to take care of every single person in Chicago, I think it's all about priorities. I think we absolutely could. Like, we're not... Act like we're broke. Like, come on now, guys. We, that's, I think it's the frustrating part for people who live on the south and west side. They're seeing the money going toward building these tent camps and stuff like that. They're like, what about us? We've been asking, begging, pleading for resources. And to kind of go to your point, root causes, yeah. So if you address the root causes there, maybe these companies are more attracted to these communities, right? Because outcomes have gotten better in these communities. That's what's happened to a few communities already, like Bronzeville. You're seeing more people come in, more high-class stuff coming in. Bronzeville Winery, outstanding new business out there doing a great job. When you actually invest in the people there and the communities there, you can bring things in from there, too. I think you got to root causes. It still comes down to that. The, the, the people in Chicago who are most desperate that you're describing or disadvantaged are not as desperate as the people that are coming from South America. If I had to say, where's the fire hottest, I would say it's these people who have nothing on their back. They will starve on the streets if we don't give them food. It is going to get cold. It's going to snow. And I know that sounds dismissive of the people who have long felt dismissed, but well, yeah, because there's but, desperation out here in the city from people too. I, I think that's why crime is part of the issue. Is it's, it's desperation as well. There's people that that's how they trying to scrap and survive. Hustle culture, in a sense, it's not right, right? But for when you don't have options, you usually only see one by any means. Um, so I think that I think that plays into it as well too. I think you can you can play it that way as well. Did we solve it? It's apples and oranges. Exactly. That's solve. It. Oh. I didn't bring up the grocery stores was not on my list, so it wasn't my idea. I don't know what's going to happen to the uh, U.S. Senator Robert Menendez or the balance of power in the United States Senate, but I will say this about the charges against the senior senator from New Jersey. This is a fun one. <laughs> You got gold bars and a convertible Mercedes and a half a million dollars stuffed in coat pockets, you know, the old-fashioned way. <laughs> and a politician who weeks after being cleared of corruption charges in 2018 is accused of diving right back into a scheme with businessmen with interests in Egypt. And there's a new, younger, tall, blonde wife to whom he proposed in song at the Taj Mahal. I'm not making that up. So... John, what's your favorite part? Oh, my favorite part about the Bob Menendez uh, indictment is that he has these gold bars, right? Yeah. And they know that he searched on Google, how much are these gold bars worth? <laughs> Which is the first thing I would do too, right? I'd be like, I don't know how much these are worth. Let me look. I'm just surprised he didn't ask Jeeves. I mean, that's really boring. Isn't there a way to delete your history on those things? Yes. To minimize that? The uh, idea that she was, his wife was allegedly given a, basically a no-work job, that his wife seemed to be the one who was orchestrating this in some ways. She's in more trouble maybe yeah, than he is, except he's trouble. a U.S. senator. He's a U.S. senator, yeah. And, and uh, I, I love the gold bars. I also like that he claims that... that uh, He's hoarding cash in enormous quantities because his parents are from Cuba and there were seizures of 
of cash, and so you have to keep, take it and hide it in your clothing at, at home, which is just absurd and unbelievable at all levels. My other, it's not a favorite part of this story, but it's like, I feel like the Democrats have got to speak with one outraged voice to show that they are the party of law and order, that when they're pointing the finger at Republicans for not being interested in law and order when it comes to the president or the ex-president, um, that they need to say that they need to draw the line and say, this can't stand, these allegations are too serious, there's too much smoke here, you need to resign from the U.S. Senate. We're not going to say you're guilty, but you, there is enough evidence against you for our purposes here that we don't want you representing the people of New Jersey. And, and the Democrats so far have been fairly weak on this. We were looking backstage. I think at it's the, 25 or 26 Democrats. So over half the Democrats in the Senate have now called for him. But not Duckworth, not Duckworth or Durbin. Not yet. Or Raja, uh, the uh, suburban congressman, has not come out against it. Well, we're, two Republicans at least have now said that he shouldn't resign. And well, but they're, they're, play, they're playing a short game. They... they, they <laughs> right, well... Exactly. They, they play themselves on that one. No, they want, the, the Republicans want to think, oh, well, these allegations, we must let them play out in the fullness of time, so let's not hold it against them, because they don't want the allegations against Donald Trump to redound well, against him. That's what their game is. Well, they, and also Menendez won by six points in New Jersey in 2018, which was a blue wave, and because tw- of the allegations that he was later uh, the hung jury, and they think in 2024 that's a state that they could capture. I think that's right. And also there's a de- – uh, is it Murphy, the Democratic governor yep. of New Jersey, that he will – if Menendez is ejected – he will Murphy will appoint his successor. That person will have the advantage of roughly a year's worth of incumbency. But Chuck Schumer on. should put up the expulsion vote as soon as he can. I mean, that, if if you're going to be the party that says that Donald Trump shouldn't run for president because of these indictments, then because of this indictment, he shouldn't be in office. Yeah, I do. This is his third, right? Even by Durbin's own this standard, is third, right? Third, so, second or third yeah. federal indictment. Yeah, and Durbin. Uh, Durbin called for Al Franken to resign immediately when that photo came out. He also called for Mike Madigan to resign after the 2020 election where the progressive income tax failed. He blamed that on Madigan and called on him to resign. And then you have a guy going out who makes Ed Burke look like Mr. Rogers in, <laughs> in terms of his cartoonishness of corruption. And I thought actually the most, the most disturbing thing about that was not that a politician's taking bribes, because that happens a lot, especially here. It was his noxious invocation of race in response to people asking him to step down. And his response was basically like, these people are just classic, you know, trying to keep the Latino man down. He's just trying to get his gold bars and cash in his suits. And that is particularly offensive given New Jersey is one of the most proud Cuban-Americans. I think they have the highest share of Cuban-Americans of any state. It's more than Florida, even with all the Cubans in in Miami. And for him to say that, I thought, was just almost disqualifying in and of itself. That was so horrible. This dude is like a walking Scrooge McDuck. (laughs) I have never heard of some dude. And Scrooge McDuck also walks. The thing missing is the monocle. He just needs the monocle and the top hat, right? This is like a human version. Like, gold bars? I'm, I'm totally with Eric. The Democrats have to take a stand here, right? Three federal indictments... Obviously, Donald Trump's got what? Four. Four. Yeah. yeah, Al Franken being asked to resign for the, the, the uh, little offenses that he was accused of seems yeah. very quaint in retrospect, right? I yeah. mean, uh, that uh, the, the offenses that he was accused of are, are just so minor compared to what's, what Menendez was. And, and, and Durbin coming out and calling for, I mean, and a lot of Democrats came rushing out demanding Franken resign. Yeah. And I think, you know, in, in retrospect, 
that was a big mistake. I think Frank. What was the big mistake? Frank and resigned. Frank and Frank's resignation. I, I mean, I, you know, I, and I thought he should have resigned at the time too. It was a mistake that I made. I thought, well, we, Democrats have got to get on the right side of the Me Too movement. They've got to be purer than Caesar's wife about this. Al Franken is a brilliant man. And he was a good was a, senator, and he was a very. You were working in Minnesota. He did the, the work. Time. He did the work. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with five guys on stage saying Me Too went too far. <laughs> so hey, don't put me. I didn't say five. Like, hey, come, come on now. But we have that problem, us mincing rascals from yeah. time to time. Yeah. Or blaming it on Bob and Endes' wife. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. Sorry, Eric. I know that's not what you meant, but. Uh, I, I Googled state and cities corruption rank to see how we were doing. Per uh, capita? You, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you know as well as us, right? I mean, you seem to be bringing up, you seem to be the uh, encyclopedia of Illinois and Chicago City corruption for us, but. Illinois ranked number three uh, in terms of corruption. So who are who's, who's one and number two? Wrong. Would you guys guess Louisiana? Yeah, Louisiana, Jersey, and Jersey, and New Jersey, and Chicago as a city is number one. The stat How much I like, time do you this need? This is really good. <laughs> the stat I like to say, the stat I like to say about Illinois is that we have had on average one public corruption conviction per week for the last forty years consecutively. Wait, 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 wait. On average, one public official is convicted of corruption per week in Illinois for the last 40 years running. 52 times 40, whatever that is. Yeah. 40 or 4? 40. 40? So if this is what I talk about when I say that the indictments and people going to jail. (laughs) 2,000. Yeah, a couple thousand. I'm positive. So... Uh, indictments don't solve corruption. If they did, we would be the least corrupt state. We are the third most or the first most, depending on what you ask. It's the structures and institutions and laws that make you more or less corrupt as a state. And with Chicago, what's interesting is if you take per capita for Chicago, the northern uh, judicial district, right? That per capita is like middle of the pack for major cities where we're extremely corrupt, outrageously corrupt is inner city council. And the, the reason, and I think it's 40, 40 city council members have gone to prison since the 1970s. So there's a higher crime rate in our city council than in the most dangerous neighborhood in Chicago. <laughs> like, by a fair amount. Is it because they're allowed side jobs? Is that part of it? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm that's serious. a good question. No, oh, so that, point. the reason I bring that up is because they have, you, they have been, because of the way the city is structured, they've been given uniquely corruption-prone jobs. Their jobs are to be this like officious ombudsman in their little fiefdom that decides all the zoning, that decides all the sidewalks, that decides all the awnings, that decides all the signage. And inevitably, people give them bribes to change those tiny little things that nobody else would notice, and then the rest of the city council votes in favor of it, and that's the system. And so indictments aren't helping city council. We have to change rules. Well, Mayor Lightfoot tried to get rid, or she said she was going to try to get rid of aldermanic prerogative, which is what you're talking about. Bring Um, in the light, right? And and it just doesn't go anywhere in the city council. The city council doesn't want to do that. And she ultimately dropped it because they like the ability to control awnings. And and, and and there's some good reason for it. You 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 want to have some control, some local control over some of these things. But as you point out, it just gets out of hand so quickly. 
But the, it seems like the city council is just so resistant to that kind of change that it's just not going to happen, right? 48 of them are going to take their raises, it seems, like come January, although they made reporters FOIA that information as opposed to publicly releasing it like they normally do. It's cost of living, right? Yeah, it's a cost of living increase, but they can deny it. And every year, they have a deadline. It's in the middle of September to tell us whether they're going to do it or not. And every year, the city puts out a list of who says yes or who says no, including whether the mayor is going to take the raise or not. But this year, Mayor Johnson said, I'm not releasing it. I'm going to tell you in October when the city budget is. Making reporters dig through FOIA requests to get that information, which I just think speaks to the larger issue that I have with the Johnson administration, which is you are a transparent. You came in under the guise of transparency. And that's how you're going to treat reporters and not say information that I think for the most part, I don't care if they take their cost of living raise, right? Cost of bread's going up for them too. It doesn't really bother me all that much that they take their raise that they deserve. But why hide that from reporters in some way to make them dig for that? He was very transparent about handing over that letter that Lori Lightfoot tried to bury. 100%, right. If Durbin Duckworth, if, if one of our Democrat senators said that Menendez should resign it's not binding. Do you think there would be any political repercussions for them? Like, what would be the worst thing that would happen? Look, uh, the fact that Durbin says it doesn't mean that the man is going to go to jail. It just means Durbin is expressing a, a pretty principled opinion at no risk to him. He's the safest senator there is. Wouldn't you agree? So, well, he's not expressing a principled opinion. He's, he's acted completely differently in other contexts. And then the second thing is you have to wonder, of course, for all of these people, what kind of dirt does Menendez have on them? That's the only. That's the only. What, wow. what other reason? Right? Really? You, you think th- that's it? Absolutely. That's the way really? all that works. Yes. Well, that, well yes. There, there is there is the cold calculation that if Menendez resigns, there's going to be a period when the Democrats' control of the Senate is now it's it, they don't they would not have it any longer, right? Because they wouldn't have the tie-breaking vote. So I mean, you don't get an instant replacement. You have to have hearings and all the other stuff. So that could be just could be a purely raw political calculation. Like, look, the voters are going to get rid of this guy next year, and the courts are going to or the judge, the jury is going to put him in prison. Let's deal with next year's election. Let's hang on to our our uh, advantage in the Senate. That that could be it. I mean, I, I don't, I can't. But really I don't think. Dick Durbin is the linchpin of whether he resigns or not. He's not going to resign. It's expulsion is the real question, and no one's asking that yet. Well, but but Durbin's what Durbin says signals how he would vote on an expulsion vote, right? Perhaps, perhaps. I would just think at this point the Democrats would just want to not create any possible distractions for 2024. You have a I'm going to call him a weak candidate in Joe Biden at this point, uh, incumbent. How dare you? I, I'm so, I mean, hey, I'm I'm going off the national polling, but uh, you know. Why would you want to create another thing that can be used in the Fox News cycle over and over and over about corruption and Democrats and Democratic cities? We can just go ahead and take care of this now. You already have to worry about the Hunter Biden situation. Why add another possible distraction from talking about the good things Joe Biden has done in America? I mean, him being the most pro-labor president apparently now. Like, So what are you suggesting then that they do about this? Just let him stay or no. cut, cut bait? I'm saying cut bait. Every, like, let's just get rid of it right now. Obviously, this guy's a little bit corrupt. This is a the third one. It's <laughs> the third one. I mean, come on now. Corrupted. Gold bars? I've never heard of this. Corrupt Egypt. adjacent. Like he was a Raider of the Lost Ark or something. Like, it's crazy. It's crazy. I, it, it's a big deal expel, expelling the senator. It takes two-thirds of the Senate, and I don't think we've had one, maybe one since the Civil War has been expelled. It's been a long time. Yeah. 
I also don't know if you have 17 Republican votes to expel. They're in a tough spot, as we mentioned earlier, uh, where they're defending a, a presidential candidate for running well under indictment. So I don't think the Democrats will take that step unless they know they get that vote through. Don't you think Donald Trump's on another planet compared to not the criminality, just the whole dialogue. There's the world, and then there's the world that Donald Trump seems to control. Well, the scope's much larger with former President Trump, too. Just in terms of who he is and what that represents as the presidency versus a senator, yes. Yeah. There could also be a political advantage in getting everybody on the record for next for, two, for 2024, getting the senators who are up for re-election on the record. If you say running against a, a Republican who did not vote to expel Menendez, you can say you know, it's pro-corruption. I mean, I'm just looking at this purely as a political hack. You know? I, honestly, I think we overthink these things. Maybe 20 years ago some of this stuff mattered, but it doesn't matter in today's politics. Where you stand on Bob Menendez in <laughs> you know, September of 2023 does not matter in November of 2024. It doesn't matter in December of 2023. Like, it doesn't matter anymore. We do not... Our politics moves too quickly. The discussions move so fast that there will be another big thing in two weeks. George Santos is still in the house. Right, and how often do we talk about it? But how often do we talk about it? No, I mean, well, I, I, I think I'm reinforcing oh, your point. Oh, you're on my side. Well, I yeah. agree with you. Imagine that. <laughs> Great point. No, you're right. Exactly. He's still there working out on a plea deal with the feds, potentially. So, But that's a good, that's a good point you make. I mean, nothing does seem to matter. It matters what color jersey you're wearing, right? Yep. You're wearing red, blue. It doesn't matter. And that's, and that's why I think it's important, at least for these middle-of-the-road voters, to at least signal to them that you are a party of principle. True. Uh, and, and maybe just at, at those little small margins in the middle, you've got people saying, well, you know, yeah, the, the Democrats have, have got their problems and Joe Biden is old and everything like that, but at least this party is standing for something, is standing for principle. Um, and maybe that does make a little difference. But I, I mean, in general, yeah, it's, it's been stunning to me with all the indictments of Donald Trump that his polling numbers keep going up among Republicans. It's, and he's even doing fairly well nationally. So what do you think is driving that? I think it's, it's, just, it's just pure partisanship. It's just, but it, but I mean, we've always accounted for that sort of baseline. Well, what's the number? Forty percent of Republicans, or forty percent of the population, that say Donald Trump's their guy. But he seems to be escalating, and I don't see him. I, I did hear one uh, Republican lawmaker put it this way: He hasn't been so crazy lately. He's, <laughs> you know, with the exception of the fact that windmills are making whales. I was about to mention the whales. Which, that happened. That's one of the craziest things I've ever said. But I'm, I'm trying to figure out why he's actually moving up, and I think it's more because. Joe Biden seems to be moving down. That Joe Biden can't seem to catch a break. You say he's less crazy than normally. He just basically called for the uh, for the assassination of, of, of General Milley, uh, and the things that he is ranting about on his social media platform are nuts. I mean, he's so I'm not. I would disagree with whoever said that. I, mean, I think that he is crazier than ever, um, but that it doesn't it doesn't seem to make a difference with his his core voters. That that it's kind of a the fact that he drives people crazy on the left is a is a definitely a feature, not a bug, and and so the crazier things he says, the more he gets people worked up. The, the well, the survey like I that. saw on TV this week, uh, you know, I've got four screens up. One of them is News Nation. Yes, you two should watch it. So I've usually got Fox, News Nation, CNN, and maybe MSNBC. There's four news channels up. Well, one of the graphics I saw demonstrated that the uh, principal concerns from the potential voters in the next presidential election, number one, was Joe Biden's age and his ability to lead or live if he's reelected. Number two was 
Donald Trump's criminality. Wow, that's, that's tough. Because I think we know how old Joe Biden is. And we've seen that he's not a great speaker right now. And he's not as sharp as he once was. But that's Joe. He's too old. Oh, therefore, his numbers go down. Why did his numbers go down? Oh, because people say he's too old. I wish we could get off that wheel. Well, I think a lot of the numbers, why you see 72% of people of Americans are concerned about Joe Biden's age is because Democrats actually have the gumption to criticize a leader of theirs. And, I, like, I voted for Joe Biden. I have no problem criticizing him on the federal government's response to immigration and other things. You ask the average Trump voter, sorry to paint a broad brush, three things they don't like about what Donald Trump did, they can't name anything. They won't because they are so dug in to this, their leader. Whereas at least Democrats, I feel like, will criticize. And that's, I think, where some of this polling is. A lot of the national polls that are tied, or one poll showing Joe Biden down 10 points, ABC, Washington Post, is a lot of it is from Democratic lack of enthusiasm, which maybe blindly, I still think I have faith that will come around when the choice is ultimately made. I do too. I think when it's one-on-one and the Democrats sort of sitting, should I sit home or should I go out and vote against Donald Trump? I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, that's what it's uh, more about. I think, I think people are going to say, yeah, Joe Biden's old. Yeah, I'm not sure I like Kamala Harris as president. Uh, but my God, four more years of Donald Trump, I don't think so. Maybe. And they'll get out and vote. That's, I think that's the Democrats, really, their best hope. And, and so that if the, Democrat, if the Republicans do happen to turn around and nominate someone like a Nikki Haley, uh, that... that, that Biden will be in much bigger trouble. But I think Biden and the Democrats are secretly thinking that Trump is their best bet to run against. I mean, who's enthused about Joe Biden at this point? I think the key demographics you need to, one, you know, win the Democratic Party overall over young people, people of color, they're not excited about Joe Biden. Are you going to energize them enough to hit the polls? We just saw this 2020 election had a record number of people show up to the polls on both sides, for Trump and for Biden. What happens if people are more enthused on their side for Trump and Biden's side is like, eh. And we didn't even mention the potential of a third party candidate, which usually don't have that big of an impact, but like... Did in 2016? They did in 2016, and in a year like this... There are two very unpopular candidates. Uh, you have the right candidate up on the third side. Yeah, but how many people some. were moderate Republicans, whatever that means anymore, that voted for Trump last time or the first time that are going to show up and vote for Trump again? Don't you think there's a little gravity to all of these indictments against him? Isn't that going to sort of minimize? He'll get his base, but the people who you and I know, who we sort of arrange the chairs around at Thanksgiving, that... <laughs> <laughs> that might have voted for Trump just because you know, they're not loving him, but they voted for him. I just wonder how many of those marginal Trump voters who have voted for him in the past are still going to turn out for him. Conversely, the same people who voted for Joe Biden the first time as a referendum on Trump, they will do it again. They will they, or they won't. Weren't, they weren't so high, super enthusiastic no, about they Joe weren't. Biden the first time but, anyway. But the issue is the same, right? The, yeah. It's a referendum on Donald Trump. The Republicans will try to make it a referendum on Joe Biden. I think that will lose to the message that it is a referendum on Donald Trump. I love y'all's optimism. I, I really... <laughs> No matter how you feel about Trump, you can't deny at this point that he was boosted up in part by dark, insidious things like racism in this country. And I'm never going to discount the power and influence of racism on the electorate, on people's decision making, because you're, you vote privately. You can signal whatever you want to the people around you. Once you go in that booth, pull the curtain, you do what you do. And we saw. You know, there are a lot of people virtue signaling, usually on the Democratic side, they're not going to vote for Trump in 2016. And we saw those numbers, white women in particular, spiking up for Donald Trump. 
people don't feel any better. <laughs> you know, yeah. the economy is, the, the, is still the big story and people, the numbers aren't helping, you know, because people still don't feel that impact in their pocketbook. It's a bummer. It's not Haley versus Whitmer or something like that. Or I'd much rather get have back that. To you know, policy, let's yeah. talk for DeSantis policy. versus Gavin is the one that you're going right. to get here oh, because my. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom are going to debate. Sean Hannity on Fox News is going to be the moderator of a red state, blue state exchange of ideas, which would be kind of interesting to me if maybe Sean Hannity weren't moderating it. Or if Newsom doesn't seem to be submarining, maybe intentionally, maybe not, Joe Biden's status is the party's incumbent candidate. What is this thing all about? Uh, Newsom is just, uh, you know, showing some leg, right? He's trying to get, uh, I mean, he, he's, he's looking for down the future. He's looking for, for 2028. Uh, he's trying to you know, build his national reputation. I, I, you know, I think you're going to see You don't think same. he's looking at 24? No, no, I think he isn't. He has certainly said he isn't. I don't think Pritzker is yet. I don't think Gretchen Whitmer is. I think all these people are, are holding back. But I think that they're both... The air, they're trying to position themselves as the heir apparent. Exactly, yeah. In case something were to happen. I mean, let's be honest, to Absolutely. Joe Biden or to Donald Trump. Absolutely. If, 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 Biden, if Biden hits his head when he falls or something like that, I mean, you know, I mean, it happens, right? It does, I right? mean, it's, it, it's, uh, both these guys, both Trump and, and uh, Biden, are old men. And they're both showing their signs of age. Trump is talking about maybe we're going to start World War II uh, the other day. And, and, and uh, it was confused about who he was running against. It, like, he, he seemed to think that he was running against uh, George W. Bush uh, in 2016. So it's like uh, both these guys are, are slipping a few gears, I think. And, and, so, and so the possibility that one or both of them has some sort of a medical issue, or in Trump's case, a legal issue that just prevents them from running, uh, you can't discount that. So I think for someone like Newsom to get out there and keep his name in front of the public is a, is a smart idea. What's he got to lose? He's going to look bad on Fox News? I, I, yeah, right. Uh, but, you know, last time we asked, uh, Eric, you kind of surprised me, and you, I think, led the charge on this. We said, do you think that any of these cases will actually be active before the election? And you said that you felt none of the four criminal cases, even the civil cases, you felt would not actually be taking place prior to November of 2040. Well, you still I feel just, that way? Yeah, I mean, I just look at, at how long it's taken between the indictment of, uh, of Burke, right? Burke was indicted, Alderman Burke was indicted in 2019, was it, or 2018? I mean, it's been forever. These cases drag, especially in federal court, they go on and on and on. And, and you know, the motions and, 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 and so the idea that these would go to trial within a year is, seems extremely optimistic to me. So I don't think... John said the over-under at half. And you, you said... I said one. And are you still one? Yes. I think the D.C. case will go. The D.C. case the being... January the 6th, but more about the plot leading up to January 6th. How does how did the documents case not happen before then? I mean, Well, there's a lot of security uh, considerations that have be taking place for classified documents. They have to go into skiffs. Lawyers have to review things. The January 6th case, and also the judge in the January 6th case, has warned uh, former President Trump that if he keeps on saying that Jack Smith is deranged... She's going to move the trial date up so that there's not a tainted jury, and I don't think he's going to stop doing that. All right, so just uh, I, I'd be interested in the rest of you guys. Austin well, didn't go on the record. What's your over-under on the number of cases that actually go to trial? Uh, yeah, it's under. Before the election. Before the election under, yeah. Zero. Yeah, say for the same reasons that Eric Zero. said. Yeah. Mike Madigan's trial look, it's the same thing, right? Yeah. This, these gears grind very slowly. If it was an actual betting line, I'm a sports better. It'd be 0.5. Um, I, I'm going to go with zero. I, I don't. I don't see it. 
Yeah, all right, I'm going to say one, and what if I'm right? Ooh, I'll look so smart. <laughs> I, had the, I had the Bears winning last weekend, so. <laughs> and here's how bad that Bears game was. I don't know if you've listened to radio lately, but Taylor Swift was at the game. And in the first quarter, they were spending so much time on her in the, in the suite that I thought, this is how bad it is for the Bears that, are you sure they're going to lose? But this game is, this team is so bad. This is such bad competition for the Chiefs that we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on Taylor Swift, who's the best person in the world. Beautiful and talented and smart. I nothing bad to say about her. Yeah. Uh, is it, are we pivoting to Bears talk? I, I don't know. One quick thought. <laughs> I think we'd be all be okay with the Bears being 0-3 if their offense was any good. Like, the defense was terrible last year. I think a lot of people figured they would be. They didn't really do much to fix that. If they had lost 41-35, to at least you're saying, oh, Justin Fields is doing something. What people are so upset about is that he looks bad, and they, we put so much hope into him. It looks like he's regressed. That's, that's the worst part, too. It looks like he's worse than he was last year. Um, there is no doubt, it's on the record now, we'll say it, he has not played well. <laughs> Courage. Okay. Courage, my friend. Okay. But I still, Very brave think, of you. I still think this is a team, you can't ignore the fact that they got a patchwork offensive line. They have so many holes here that they're trying to fill. Um, they don't seem to be able to run a competent offense at all with coaching. Uh, you know, Field said coaching is probably the issue here. You, you watch him; he looks conflicted in the pocket. He's he's he looks like he he's, wants to run and he was told not to. So he's like, ah, let me stay here and take the sack. Like something is not translating, and this staff even needs to go talk to Ryan Day at Ohio State and figure out what worked. <laughs> we talk to a college coach. Yeah, what? Well, yeah, of course you should. Well, Ryan Day coached in the NFL for the Saints. He was a quarterback coach, so this guy knows NFL systems, runs an NFL system, and Fields wasn't a guy that was running the the football a lot at Ohio State. He was sitting back there and passing. So what worked there? C.J. Stroud's doing great for the Houston Texans. So clearly something's working for Ohio State with their offense. How can you connect that to Justin Fields and make it work? But at this point, he's got, what, one year left on his contract after this one? They may have to make a decision with all these quarterbacks in the draft to maybe, you know, grab another one. But if you don't have the system in place to be successful, what's another quarterback going to do? We get our Sundays back. That's how, that's how I look at this. Is we no longer have to plan our Sundays around the. I mean, that's where games. you get into fantasy football. You know, you start you know, watching those. Well, I have half my Sunday back now because after the halftime, you know, you go mow the lawn. It's you're not going to miss much. Go Cubs though. My uh, the Cubs are needing to. Yeah. Well, Thank yeah. you. Any Eric. White Sox people here? There we go. Yeah. Uh, Both teams tough. are interesting, right? The Cubs might make the playoffs, and the Sox might lose a hundred. So <laughs> it is kind of interesting. Where's my producer, Pete Zimmerman? I, we we want to do uh, one last quick thing here before we wrap up the podcast today. Uh, the you guys have been a lot of fun. Uh, some of you wrote down questions that uh, producer Pete will ask, and if you have a question that you want to ask the Rascals, uh, you can raise your hand, and we'll take your question as well. By the way, uh, producer Pete is in the back. And I know that at the end of the podcast, you'll sometimes hear me say the Mincing Rascals are produced by Pete Zimmerman uh, and Ben Anderson. Sometimes I've said Brandon Pope and Brandon Johnson have produced it. I, I kind of lose my way at the end. Uh, I'm so fortunate to have Pete Zimmerman, whose voice you only occasionally hear, but whose name you hear a lot. Thanks. He does so much work for the Mincing Rascals podcast, getting it organized and then getting it... 
uh, online and on on the air on Saturday nights. And if if you are a fan of my show, and maybe some of you are, all the good stuff comes from from Pete, and the rest is just me filling in the holes. I, I'm really fortunate to have him as a producer, and you're fortunate to have him as a producer. All right, Mr. Zimmerman. So, do you have some for us? Uh, well, I, I. I didn't get around to getting the pens out. <laughs> uh, we, we were, Forget all that stuff yes. we talked about. <laughs> all the good things. So right, he's a mind. pretty good producer. We were, lim- we were lim- Our pen budget. Our pen budget was uh, limited this year. Yes. Yes. Thanks, Joe Biden. <laughs> so, if anybody in the audience has a question, I'll come out to you. If you there raise we go. your hand. Raise your hand if you got a question. Someone's got a card right here, Pete. Hi, my name is Karen. I've been amazed that you guys have not discussed or brought up the Mexican Independence Day traffic debacle. Could you talk about that for a few minutes? Uh, We can for a minute. We have in the past. Yeah, I mean, the idea being, like, what is the city going to do? How unprepared was the city, given that this has been now a phenomenon for several years, that that the uh, traffic in the loop gets clogged up with with revelers, and the city just did not seem to be prepared for it. And, you know, my response to that is that they need to to go back to having an organized celebration of Mexican independence. I mean, something like a third of the population of Chicago has Mexican roots. It's a it's a significant population, and they have a lot to be proud of. And I think having them uh, <clears throat> having a big celebration, say in in Grant Park, Millennium Park, would be really appropriate, and would would minimize the people who are driving around clogging traffic, which is something that I think go, cuts against uh, what they're trying to do, which is to enhance the image of Mexican Americans in the city. So, so I, I think they really need next year to figure out a way. They need to work with that community to create safe spaces to do that uh, sort of They had plans about closing bridges or closing streets or you know minimizing the flow of whatever might happen, but that's the exact opposite of what they should be doing. They should be embracing this, owning it, organizing it, rather than, you know, planning a contingency in case it like goes south. Like they do for St. Patrick's Day. Hey, when I am driving down Lakeshore Drive or Michigan Avenue, I see so much fencing around Grant Park, and I'm wondering why. Uh, and I is hate there, that. yeah, is there any alternatives that we can suggest? Um, because it's a great park, and I love the the fountain and everything around it. Um, what is the purpose of that? Is it just for these private events? Tear down the fence. Tear. <laughs> I, think, I think it's because, uh, this is my understanding, there is so much wear and tear on Grant Park because of how often the city sells it off to private things like Lollapalooza that they then have to protect grass uh, with fencing. And it's a huge problem. This is, in other cities, this is called concessions. It's when you sell assets that belong to all of us in the city to private interests. And our process for doing it with parking, deal, parking meter deal was mentioned earlier, right? Like, we do it in such a backwards way where the mayor can say to NASCAR, hey, you guys want a really cool marketing opportunity? I'll sell off, yeah, whatever, I don't know, whatever you want, do it downtown, I don't care. Like, how much money is it? We get a good image? Okay, great, and then they do it behind closed doors and it happens. And that happens with Grant Park, it happens with other parks too. It happens with uh, uh, Riot where Fest. Riot Fest is, right? Union. What is that part of being part of a world-class city, having events that 
happen sometimes in our parks? Here he yeah. goes. Yeah, but what, <laughs> well, I, what if the events cost you know, yeah. $300 to get into? Like, a lot of pollution, right? Like, that's not, right. That's not the it's purpose not really a of a public event. park yeah. to host a very exclusive music festival that takes over the park for, I think, two weeks, basically. You can't really use the park for that time. Yeah, yeah. more well, than that. Well, and yeah. NASCAR is six, depending right. on how you count it. We should it. have fun stuff. Like, the concert series at Pritzker Pavilion is fabulous, and that's a way that we use our parks, and it's really good. Yeah, give it up for... Whatever that's called. What is it? The Summer Concert Series at Pritzker Pavilion. I wonder how many days out of 365, or how many days out of 90, June to... Nice days. 200 days that thing is closed off? The fencing is up? Whatever the number is, we're losing. The the numbers should be switched. Uh, Who else has a question? question. This is uh, regarding the uh, shooting at White Sox Park. Today's Tribune said that the CPD, Chicago Police Chief of Patrol, requested the game to stop. Who overruled him? You know, how high up did that go? It's a, it's a ranking member of the police department, I believe. Yeah. I- you know, Mayor Johnson said that he wouldn't say what he knew and what he was asked. Um, and it, it seems to me that probably what happened was that this request to stop the game didn't make it up to the top uh, suites in the White Sox Park at the time. It, it, I don't think anybody overruled that person so much as there's just confusion going on and they just kept the game going. What's puzzling to me about this whole thing still is that the woman who was uh, the, the victim in this case, the woman who was hit by the bullet, isn't talking. She has a lawyer. Police. It's like, what's that you were shot and you're not talking? And, and of course the allegation is that it was her gun and that she shot herself in the leg, right? Isn't that that's what the... Well, it... it what are the chances that the bullet would graze your thigh and hit your calf if that gun wasn't in your pocket, right? Now, maybe it could have come from Waukegan and, and, <laughs> and fallen in. But, I mean, isn't that what people think that somehow... But what is taking them so long to figure this out? I mean, the, the, all the ballistics and all that? And I, I mean, it just... It, I, I think maybe a lot of people know, but they don't know enough to bring a charge yet, or... Why is Brandon Johnson so squirrely about it? I don't know. Like, what do you mean by about that? Every, he's about, about so many things. The guy... I mean, with, with, the, with the charges... I mean, we're going far afield here, but the charges against Melissa Conyers-Irvin, he's, he's uh, confronted with that, and he says, well, well that, that, is, that, that matter's been settled. Like, what's that? It's not been settled. It's, it's been settled technically. It, with the civil suit has been settled. That's a serious allegation against... And I want to see some outrage from that guy, not, not a brushing off. Do you think we'll ever... I don't think we'll ever know. Uh, I seriously don't. Of the, sh- the shooting of White Sox. Right. Sports. Where the gun came I think from. They, I think they probably do know, as John said. I think they probably know, and they, but they need to say so. They need to say, this is what we think happened. And if, and if we're wrong, alleged victim, then sue us or would something. This, I mean, will this keep you from going... That should work. Will this keep you, uh, Mr. White Sox fan, from going to a White Sox game? Uh, no, but the quality of the team has kept me away from you. From you. How about that, though? The White Sox said, if, we, if you just give us a dollar, we'll let you come to Thursday's game. And they sold out there. the lower bowl. It worked. I mean, the 100-level the seat sold. And those people might buy beer. I think they should reconsider their pricing structure next year. Um, What's the name of that green mascot that they have? Southpaw. Has anyone questioned him? <laughs> he does have some roles. He could have, yeah. Oh, very I, suspicious. I, I just thought I was going to bring that up. Thank you for that question. Know. We've been of no help. Uh, Pete, uh, over here. It's, it's kind of the same question. Why do you think that Chicago mainstream media has dropped this story? I mean, Lisa Dent does kind of stay on it, but it's, it's still an open story. I mean, Mayor Johnson may want to dismiss it, but why are we not... Why isn't 
Chicago media is staying on the story to get the answer. As a, a White Sox fan, no, I don't want to go to the ballpark yeah. either. If I think that, you know, maybe a stray bullet's going to come my way, but where's the answers? Why are we not pushing to get the answer to resolve this? It's got to be resolved. That was a month ago. I think a lot of reporters are asking questions. If you get absolutely no answers, you run out of things to say nothing new here i mean i don't know if you want like a tracker every day on the broadcast uh, on the tv saying it's been x amount of days uh i do see a lot of chatter still about it to the to the question i think what you're getting at too is i i do want to give a little grace for the idea of things happening really quickly and not in a really confusing situation no one heard a gunshot right it's someone appears with a wound and you have a bullet that looks as clean as it like like the magic bullet in the JFK assassination, that theory, and you know, sounds I, I, like a, mascot behavior. I, I just mean it's a hard. To, sounds like we're playing Clue right now. I think it's pretty weird. I think it's easy to say, and yeah. I, I think it's the right decision. If someone, if they think someone shot at the game, stop the game. Tell us more about it. But I think the actual nuts and bolts of it are a little bit more complicated, and. No one's going to say anything if they don't know that they can charge someone. Well, on the backdrop, and they shouldn't. Would you? Do they want you saying something about you? That that's fair. Tell us that we right. Tell we, us we what you know. Something, but we can't say. It All right. So Steve Bertrand always says the fact that they haven't told you doesn't mean they don't know, or it's not that they're not working on it. But what's the purpose of the media then if you're not relating the information? And these are public officials. They should use the media to tell us what they know. Remember, the backdrop is. Three people shot and killed is a good weekend in Chicago. So somebody with an anomalous injury on their leg at a Sox game is not the biggest gun story. I mean, when it first came up, I told these guys, I was like, eh, whatever. And Eric lost his mind. He goes, somebody got shot at a game. That's really huge. You need to pay attention to this. But I think we've sort of moved on. sound like me? I don't think so. I, I, <laughs> I didn't have the perspective that I needed on that. I withdraw my indignation. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I mean, I guess I, honest, I've come to the conclusion that this is probably what happens. The woman had the gun with her for one reason yeah. or another, and it went off, and it grazed her leg, and she didn't know what to do or what to say, and... But in fairness to that point, we should know that because security needs to be re-examined how it got into the ballpark. You know what security is doing. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. How did the gun get in is maybe the most That's important the question of all. I don't, I don't have a lot of confidence in the security. Let's screen. solve it here, everyone. Come on, stay. Yeah, the, a good brainstorming yarn session. and yeah. pins up and try and figure it out. Pete Zimmerman, hand raised. Yes, sir. My name is Dave Lewis. I'm a professor at Oakton College, and... Um, up in Des Plaines in Skokie, and uh, beginning of the semester before classes started, the staff and other professors, we were, during our orientation, we were given a, a kind of a trivia question round, and one of the questions that came up to us was, other than English, how many different languages do our students speak? Um, and I, I, want, I want to ask you guys that question. At Oakton? At Oakton. Can you guys come up with a number? Like, if one person speaks it, that counts as one language. Seven. In one class or the whole no, school? The, the whole school. Like, How many students? Several, several thousand. Okay. I, I'd set the overall under at six and a half. Oh, I'll say 25, 30. 75. On the northwest side? How many languages are there? Uh, Austin, I, where are you? So I'm, I have an inside track on this because my wife is an ESL teacher in that area. So I'm going to guess 120. What is the answer? There's 71 different languages oh spoken gosh. by our students. <laughs> <laughs> the, re- 
should have taken my six and a half. That's great. Well, if this were the price is right, you went over, though. So you... Yeah. <laughs> Re- the reason, I bring, one, yeah. reason I bring it up is because... So Brandon wins? Is that... Pardon me, but... You said six. No, he did not win. Hush, hush, hush. The game, they were the uh, game, man. Hold on. And, and your point is what? Because it's very interesting. The reason I bring it up is because you guys spoke a lot about the, the border issues at the beginning, and these, these people are coming to our country, and they do want to do something with their lives. So 71 different languages represents a lot of people coming here to want to have a life. And I think most of us here have our origins in different parts of the world. And I think that's Amen. an important thing to keep in the back of our mind. So I, I just want to have that as a, as a perspective on things. So keep that in mind. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah, I, think, I think it's really true. I think it's, it's worth saying, again, that, that, that these people who are coming to the city, um, coming to Chicago, ultimately will be an asset to the city. Overall, a lot of people come here illegally across the border claiming asylum because there are so few channels to get into the United States legally. Right. If you don't have an HB1 visa, if you're not uh, brought in through a family member, there. if you're someone, I asked this to a lawyer once, if you're someone in another country and you just want to come to the United States and make a better life, you have no connection, you have no visa, how long will it take? They said best case 20 years to get here to the United States through a legal process. Yeah. We got seven minutes left. Producer Pete had just some other things that maybe this will be the lightning round. This will be just anything you guys want to say about some other topics we haven't yeah, covered. Yeah, I'm going to just ask some questions, and if you guys just want to answer them as uh, quickly as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yes or no answers. That's for John Hanson. Yeah, sorry. Will you watch The Golden Bachelor? <laughs> no. The Golden Bachelor? You don't know what that is? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. That's The Bachelor for old people. Right there are going to be 65-year-olds. <laughs> you haven't seen the promos or trailers for this? I think it yeah. starts Thursday night. Thursday night. And I will watch it only because I have to. No. 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 I'm a no. I'm a yes. I host a Bachelor podcast, so yeah, I'm a oh, yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really, if you can watch the 20-year-olds, you could watch the 60. Because I think that the 20-year-old version, the 30, whatever those, I think that is the dumbest show and i and the smartest people i know watch yeah. it which yeah. is the real so, conundrum so the 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 bachelor is 71, 71. how old are the uh 64 to 75 okay yeah i'm so, intrigued I'm, I'm actually very intrigued it's age appropriate you know this has just been handed to me They're watching news nation Whatever happened to Reverend Corey Brooks on the roof? Did he reach his goal for the community center? He wants $35 million to make it. He has 30. If any of you have $5 million. But they did break, not only break ground ceremonially earlier this year, but they actually have tractors there. They're making it. So uh, if you go to projecthood.org, you can still make a donation. Thank you, Corey Brooks. Absolutely. Uh, Should there be a dress code for members of Congress? (laughs) No. No, I mean, it should be incumbent upon them to dress reasonably, but no, I'm more interested in their boats and their clothes. No. You may, may be surprised. I say yes, a little, <laughs> little bit. Yeah, but look at you. You're stunned. I would say no for the reason that I think it exposes the standards of the people who are in elected office. Oh, so that we get to see, we know them better for who they are. Okay, what else you got, Pete? Will you tip less if Chicago abolishes the sub-minimum wage? Uh, I will not. No, because I, I, don't, I don't think that the fact that um, that person is now making a little more money, why do I have to now subtract from what I give them so that now we, they're still not making much money? If they get a, a slightly higher minimum wage, I'm still going to tip on the food that I have in front of me. 
I'm like a 20 to 25 percenter, I think, in the city of Chicago. In five years, once they're up to the subminimum wage, I'd still tip 15 to 20. I would lower it, but I'd still tip for sure. Yeah. This is impossible to answer on a stage. What? Like, <laughs> we did it. I Come mean, on. I, 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 just it's lie. Tough. Just go. Yeah. I, will, I, will, I think I will keep my same tip amount, but I'm. Here's my latest pet peeve on the tipping. The like 7-Eleven style stores where I'm getting like an automatic oh. $1 tip. That's not okay. Or they That's spin that cool. thing around yeah. at you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't All right, want to Pete, feel what's bad. your next question? Well, the, new, the advantage of this new law is that in Chicago will be that you now know, don't have to wonder whether, say, your barista is getting the sub-minimum wage or the minimum wage, which is, is always this feeling you have like when, when you're at one of these counter situations where you, someone has, has you know, filled up a, a cup of coffee for you. And uh, then you've got to decide, well, do they, do they, are they relying on tips to make a minimum wage? Now you no longer have to do that. Um, I, I'll probably be with, at least temporarily, I'll be with, with John Hansen about this. I'll probably lower it a little bit. But then I will probably go back. I mean, and I took a poll at the Picayune Sentinel, and there were, it was like basically two to one. People were saying they would tip less, less. As, they, as they're paid more. Uh, but I think over time, the places like Washington, D.C., where they've done this, the tip drop and then they come back as Monica Ang was telling us. So. Alright, one more piece. Will Travis Kelsey be dating Taylor Swift by Super Bowl Sunday? <laughs> by wait, wait, what's the deadline? Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, yes, of, yes, of course. It's love. No. <laughs> <laughs> Romantic. Come on. Yeah, I think there's a chance. If no. they're really dating. No, no. Yeah. History is a great teacher. It's I say no. Stuff. Austin? No. No? Okay. That concludes our podcast. Whoa! <laughs> This is the first time we've done this. Was this fun? Was this okay? Did you guys have a good time? Tell your friends. We'll do another one, okay? Thanks for being here. What's that? Oh, you want me to end with speed jokes? I'm out. 10.38 tomorrow morning. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.